welcome to Doing Your Business with Matt Hartman. Joining me today is Mike Bosner, one of the lead producers of the hit Broadway show, Beautiful, the Carol King Musical. I live in New York and I love going to Broadway shows, but I really never thought about the business side of show business. Before the interview, I went to see the show. Obviously, I went to TKTS so I could get tickets half price, and it was a Wednesday night and I got literally the last ticket. It was sold out on a Wednesday, so this show has been a huge hit on Broadway. As always, please leave me a voicemail or send me a text with your comments and analysis at 646-779-1234. And if you'd like to advertise, send me an email at matt at dybpodcast.com. All right, thanks. Let's listen. A lot of people ask me, like, what does a producer do? Like, what's a producer? Like, it sounds fancy. It sounds fun. And the best way that I have, at least I think I have described it in the past, is to say that the producer is like the CEO or a founder of a company. So think of Facebook and think of Mark Zuckerberg. And the producer is the one who has the idea for the show. He is the one who puts together the team that creates the show. He puts together the financing. He hires the people to maintain um, everything on a daily basis, from the lawyers to the accountants. And I think the interesting thing about the business um, that I have become a part of, and at least the interesting thing for me, is that the whole business world of theater is a very mysterious world that nobody really knows about, and people just see shows, and they're like, ooh, that was fun. What can I take my wife to? What can I take my family to? I mean, that's how I grew up, going to shows. And there's a whole world behind what you see on stage, and the producer is the one responsible for the show and the business. And between that, it makes up show business. How did Beautiful, the Carol King musical... Well, come to be. <laughs> How did that come to be? This is a good story. So my producing partner, Paul Blake, um, who and the two of us are the two lead producers on the show, and we can also get into some of the financing of the show because there are typically many producers on shows, but there's usually just one or two, sometimes three lead producers. And Paul, who is my lifelong mentor, I've been with him for we're going into our 13th year now and I started as his intern then I was his assistant and now we're business partners uh, but about seven years ago he literally got a call out of the blue one day from the head of EMI Music Publishing who represented the catalog of Carol King, Jerry Goffin, Barry Mann and Cynthia Wilde in addition to you know a whole host of other catalogs and he said to Paul, you know, I hear you were the one who was responsible for getting the rights from the Berlin sisters and the Irving Berlin estate to do White Christmas. Irving Berlin wrote the song White Christmas in addition to many others. And he said, well, yes, I did. And so he said, okay, well, if you thought that was difficult, I got one for you. And it was the show. And he had this idea about doing a show about the Brill building area, which is in the 60s. And it produced, you know, Neil Sedaka and, again, Goffin and King, Man Wild, Lieber Stoller. Um, and it's, it was this hot, hot house of music. And they were creating the songs for, like, the Drifters, the Righteous Brothers. And they were all in floors and little cubicles, you know, half the size of this room, where they literally just wrote songs. And... 
Roger Faxon had the idea to make this into a show. And he wanted to make use of this catalog. And the show had been attempted many times before. But at the end of the day, it was not a show that Carol and the others, and Jerry and Barry and Cynthia, wanted to be done. They didn't think it accurately reflected them. They didn't think it did their music justice. So he asked if we would take a stab at it. Um, and Paul and I went down to EMI. I remember it like it was yesterday. We met with the managers of Carol and Jerry first. Um, thought they were lovely. And quickly we found out that each of the four songwriters had four completely different ideas of what the show wanted to be. One wanted a retrospective of his career. One had already written her own version of the show. One wanted a documentary of life in the 60s. And one didn't want the show to happen at all. And that was Carol King. <laughs> so we kind of went back and said to Roger, like, come on, this is impossible. Like, what, how, what are we supposed to do with this? And he said to Paul, well, this is why I've hired you. Go create the show. So it started this long process of our first main thing was to get a writer to crack this story, to go in, figure out what they really did want the shows to be about. And even though they had different ideas about the show, what was the commonality that he saw that, or she, um, that could bring everything together and pay tribute to this catalog? And we met with everyone from Pulitzer Prize winners to Oscar winners and Doug McGrath is someone who actually has an office right above ours. And he met Paul years ago when Paul consulted for Paramount and he was trying to get the rights for a movie to make into a play. And at the end of it, Paul, that, that project didn't work out, but Paul knew he wanted to work with Doug. And I had become friendly with Doug just because he was in the same office. We're both in show business. He's a filmmaker. Um, and Paul had the idea of Doug. And upon hello, the songwriters just fell in love with him. So we sent him out to California. He interviewed them all together. He interviewed them all separately. He then interviewed Barry and Cynthia, who are still married to this day, together. Um, and through that, it started the development of the show process. Now, it should all be noted that, you know, Carol still was very against this show happening. And so at this point, we were developing the show. We were coming up with drafts of the show and we said, well, maybe, you know, it should be about 50-50 between the Carol and Jerry story and the Barry and Cynthia story. And at one point, we finally said, we got to put this in front of an audience and see if people care about this and if this is really worthwhile going forward. Um, so we did. Cynthia came. Carol did not. Cynthia and Barry were there, though. And we knew from the reaction of the audience, because they weren't ballistic, that we had something special. And the song, I mean, every time these songs would come up, people would just melt, or they would be like, <gasps> or they would be like, oh my God, I didn't know they wrote that. You know, some kind of reaction to this. And at the time, Carol's new manager had just started. She replaced someone like a week prior, and Carol, who had been kind of fed up with how long this whole thing had been taking, because we're about two years in at this point, said, go to New York, go see this thing, but let's just kill it. I mean, so she was coming to kill the show. She was very nice to all of us, and 
we didn't know, of course, she was coming to kill this show. But afterwards, I've since talked to her. Her name is Sherry Condor. She's one of our executive producers now. And she went back and she and Carol said, well, you know, how was it? And Sherry said, well, it was really good. And she said, well, did you kill it? She said, no, it was really good. <laughs> and um, she said, okay, well, that I want to see it. I want to be the judge of that. So she said, put together another reading. Well, it's not as easy as that. But six months later, we got everyone in a room again, and Carol came. And, uh, you know, I ushered her into a seat, and Paul and I were standing right behind her, and she uh, was very, you know, she seemingly really enjoyed the show. She was laughing. She, like, leaned over to Sherry and said, oh, my God, we actually said those things. And at the end of the first act, she got up and walked out. And she didn't come back. And so we looked at each other, like, white-faced and said, well, I guess we're just screwed. I guess it, this whole thing is done, and she didn't like it. But the manager called us later, Sherry, the next day, and said, you know, my mom didn't come back. But that's not because she didn't like it. At the end of the first act, there's a scene where Carol and her husband, Jerry, there's a lot of trouble building up. And back then, it was when he said, I want a divorce. So it was too hard for her to go through that again. She's like, I've lived this. I don't want to sit through this again. She said, however, this is not the show I would have written or how I would have told this story, but it was a story that the audience was loving. The music was being just idolized and portrayed perfectly. And she said, and these people have an understanding of how this is done. So... I think we should give Paul the rights and um, just let the theater professionals do what they do. So at that point, we were kind of off and running, and we had the life rights now because we were telling these people's life stories, and it was private stories that they had just told Doug. It wasn't in the public record, so you need to get the legal rights for that. And we had the music, and now it was time to put the team together. And I think the interesting piece to this story in the next couple of years of development because it then got into, okay, well now we gotta make the show that everyone wants to see. And we started talking to some money people, we started talking to some uh, New York theater owners and big producers who knew how to do it here because at that point Paul and I had not done a show here. I had not done a show here. You know, I'm just turning 30. And um, Paul has had a very long career, but this is his first big one in New York. And so we figured, let's go to the people who know how to do this. And everyone had a different version of this show. They either wanted a different show, they thought it was just going to be about tapestry and not about, you know, this 60s music period that I was telling you about. Um, or they wanted a different take on it, or they wanted someone to be involved as a director who was not someone we knew would deliver our version of what worked about this script. So at the end of the day, Paul said to me, you know, we know what works about this. Let's hire the guy who we've been with for years at our theater that we ran in St. Louis called the St. Louis Muni. That guy was Mark Bruni. Um, and Bruni came in and we were off to the races. I mean, at that point, we knew we had a theater that we wanted to try the show out at. We put together one final reading where we not only locked in that theater, but we locked in our New York theater, which is the important thing, because we knew we didn't want to go out of town 
unless we had someplace to go, because that's really expensive to just kind of go out there. And it's a gamble that you're not going to find something that opens up. We also raised all of our money in that reading. I mean, it, the list goes on and on, but it kind of took on a life of its own. And a year and a half later, we opened, and here we are. And the reading you're talking about is the one that Carol went to, or was it the prior reading? Good question. So the reading that Carol gave her life rights to and she walked out on, that was in year two. This reading with Mark Bruni and the creative team that ended up doing the show on Broadway that now exists and around the world was two and a half years later. So in that time, we did two more readings, um, each with two different directors. And it wasn't until that one that Mark Bruni did that we not only found the right balance of the show, but also, as I said, got our theaters, got our money, and just decided to go. One of the things you mentioned was the was that during the readings you heard people say, "Oh, I didn't know they wrote that." And and I, when I went to see the show, I could hear murmurs of that through the audience as well. Who were the people who you were inviting in to hear the reading? Was it just that? Was it the actors and the and the team, or do you invite sort of potential audience members? Good question. So we, it's different for any show that you, know, you go to or that is being developed. We very specifically wanted some quote-unquote real audience members. So we had about, there were about probably 50 people in each of the audiences, and we did one or two presentations, or actually two or three presentations of each um, reading at the end of a week or week and a half or whatever it was. And at each of those, I would say... 25 were either industry people or people affiliated with the show and working on the show, and the other 25 were guests or people there that just, you know, go to a lot of shows, you know, because there's another funny thing, and Paul very funnily says this in front of these reading audiences, you know, Josh Logan, who's a famous director, said once that, um, you know, you give 30 people a script and ask them what they think of it, you're going to get 30 different opinions. But you put them in the room, you have an audience. And all of a sudden, what happens is even the industry people fall in. Like, there's a weird energy that comes together when you're doing a live entertainment medium that is in the room happening in front of you, and you're interacting with the people next to you. And when they are feeding off the music, you're feeding off the music, and it's like this whole thing. And you can feel it. You can feel when something's working, and you can feel, by the way, when something is not working. And uh, there were many times where we didn't, solve things. I mean, there were huge, important numbers in the show that we put in the readings that they would get, you know, for all of the, oh my God, and like the rapturous applause at the end of one number, there would be just like kind of tempered applause at the others. But we knew what was working from that in the first scenario that we then had to fix in the second one. So as a, as a producer... Were you looking at, just almost zooming out one level, a bunch of different potential shows to produce, and this is the one that you picked? Do you work on a bunch of projects at once and kind of these things just come together? I mean, it sounds like it was a long period of time that you were working on this. You know, I think it's different for everyone. For me specifically and for Paul, we, were, we had the luxury of running this theater um, in the meantime. So we were putting this 
showed together while we were running a theater as our quote unquote day job. So now we have three companies of this show running and we're talking about, you know, starting five more in the next couple of years. And it's even with that, I have shows that I've been working on. Paul has had shows that he's been working on. And like I said, we got the call for this and this really has kind of a fun story of like its journey and it took a life onto its own. And we weren't, we weren't juggling between six shows and this was the one that took off first. We were very focused on this show as we were kind of moving along in our lives, running our theater. And then it came time that we actually left this theater and it was within a year that this thing really took off and then we just focused full force on it. Can we talk a little bit about the business side of, of, of the show business? One question that I had asked you when we talked earlier was, when does a Broadway show break even? Is it, is it five days, five months, or five years? But that's, I know that's sort of a naive question, but how do you think about that at, from the very outset? It's a very good question and an important one because, you know, there's a, ver- a lot of different approaches to theater, and at the end of the day, we're all trying to do good shows, but we do commercial theater, and in commercial theater, you're responsible for your investors, and you're, in sp- you're responsible for those investments. And when we started, once we made the decision to go to San Francisco, and we were going to form these companies and raise this money and really do it commercially on Broadway, we then, the next call you do is to your general manager, and you hire a general manager who budgets everything out. She looks at the script. She thinks, how many sets is this going to be? What kind of a director is it? And she starts putting together a picture of what you're looking at money-wise. Now, some producers take that and run with it and then kind of tailor the show around that. Others say, no, I want it more. I want it bigger. I want to make this big spectacular. Others say, no, this is too much. I need it. I want to bring this in at, you know, six million, seven million, and you're at 10, you know, let's, let's figure out a way to do this. We were, I think, a combination of, first and foremost, we wanted to be true to the story of what we were doing and what we were telling, and we wanted to deliver a quality Broadway experience. I mean, these ticket prices are astronomical these days, and people are expecting value for their money, and they want to be moved, and they want to be wowed, and they want all of that. So we knew we were going to deliver what is called, you know, what we like to call a Rolls-Royce production, where, like, you want to be like, whoa, when you open the curtain and when things go away, and there's this moment in the show, which you may remember after that first scene in Carnegie Hall where you open up into the Brill building. And to this day, I get chills across the country, even in London. It's just so awesome to me because it looks like a lot of money was spent on this. But back to the question, after you put together and you find out kind of how much you want to raise to get you through to opening night, and what that does is that covers, that's your capitalization money, and it covers everything from you know hiring your team, hiring your lawyers, your accountants, your creative team to really do this and like get you through your auditions and hiring the actors and rehearsing them to get them through opening. Then you work out what your running cost is going to be and what is it going to cost you once you're actually you know, open each week on Broadway to get from your 
Tuesday night performance, because most shows are dark on Monday, through your Sunday. And then you budget out, okay, well, if I know it's going to cost me $500,000 to run this each week, if I make 700,000, I have a profit of two, how am I gonna make 700? And then you start looking at your size theaters. Well, if we're priced in you know, scenario A in a 1500 seat theater, and we're doing 70% capacity, we can pay back, we can make you know, this amount of profit and pay back in a year. If we're in a 1700 seat theater and we're priced the same way, and we do the same capacity, we're making a lot more money and we can pay back quicker. We actually took the opposite line of thinking and strategy of saying, you know, this is a smaller show. We had the opportunity to go to a bigger theater. We were offered a couple of 16, 1700 seat theaters, but we went into a thousand seat theater. We're in the Stephen Sondheim, which is uh, 1034 seats. And you run a risk there because you gotta be doing big business to really make your money each week and your expenses are the same even though your capacity is lower. Um, However, if you have a show that really works and succeeds and is a hit, as they say, you know, it creates a lot of demand and you can charge more for those ticket prices and with all this premium pricing that we do and a large part of what I do is managing that demand on a daily basis and how much can you get from the ticket prices and how much can you really pull in. I mean, our gross potential when we started and we were budgeting the show and, you know, that are in the initial investor packets was right over a million dollars. And within six months of opening the show, we were doing a million three each week and because that just kept growing and growing and growing. So the fact that we were a success and in a small house ended up really helping us. But it all goes into, you know, how do you want to strategize this show? And a very real argument could have been made to, instead of going to the smaller house, let's play the 1,700-seat house. And if we're a success... We may not be able to fill that on a Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, which are really difficult, but the extra money that we're going to make on a Friday through Sunday is so much more. Who cares? You know, you're still ahead hundreds of thousands of dollars. We chose not to do that, but that's a very valid line of thinking. You mentioned you look at the demand side. Mm-hmm. Do, the, do the prices change for the tickets weekly, daily? So... Broadway theater, and theater in general, by the way, I think is newly adopting and late to the game in adopting dynamic pricing. But they do change, and we are getting there. As an industry, it is getting there. And it's something that I do on a daily basis. I mean, one of my main focuses in driving the business and running the business side of things is making sure we're getting enough people in the house and making sure they're paying the right amount and that they're satisfied for that money that they're changing. But yeah, we dynamically price all the time. I mean, just today, I was looking at pricing maps and seating maps for the fall of 2016 and what we're going to be charging. And it's difficult because, you know, you're kind of banking on what your demand is going to be into how you can charge. But the nice thing is that at this point in our show's life, you know, we're a year and a half in, we're going into our third year soon, we're finishing our second, and we now have enough data 
about our own consumers that we can start to play off of what we know about the people coming to see our show instead of guessing or relating this show in this theater to other shows and what, you know, the street does. You know, what is a normal week on Broadway? Well, a normal week says, you know, there's a holiday here, so we should be charging more. Weirdly enough, in our show, the times that we have done our biggest business has been in off weeks uh, because we're a very localized show. And up until this point, our audience has been very local. It's been New York, New Jersey, Long Island, Connecticut, all in this area because we're new. We're We're less than two years old. Once you pass out of that, you can see in our data that we get and our, we get zip code reports that you know things are starting to change and it's moving further and further outside of Manhattan and as our national tour is now out and we're advertising nationally in each of these markets it's going to that should and is helping those holiday weeks because all of a sudden we're talking to a group that didn't know we existed before. That concludes part one of my interview with Mike. In the next episode, he talks about the impact of having a recognizable name such as Carol King involved with the musical and how he got into this business in the first place. As always, please tweet at me at Matt Hartman or at DYB Podcast on Twitter or text or leave me a voicemail at 646-779-1234. Thank you again for listening. I really appreciate it. Talk soon.